Welcome to Warp and Weft. I'm your host, Allison Carr. This is a podcast where we explore the stories, practices, and skills that help us weave our world back together. Hello, everybody. I am so excited to present this episode to you in which I talk to Eli Lolliet, who is a gender doula. Eli and I are going to talk all about what a gender doula is and all things transgender, gender nonconforming, and celebrating gender wellness. I'm particularly excited to present this episode right now at a time when the rights of trans people and especially trans children are being attacked all over the U.S. You're going to hear some resources spaced throughout in the mid-reel of this podcast, and I'm going to drop a resource list at the end for how you can get involved in fighting. But what I love about this interview is that it is just so celebratory and life-affirming. We talk about all that is right with being trans, and we celebrate all the ways in which trans people are contributing valuable and positive things to our culture. I hope you enjoy meeting Eli as much as I loved talking to him. In 2018, I self-published a zine called Sovereign. Framed within the story of the Scottish folk ballad, Tam Lynn, Part one of the zine traces the story of how I joined a Wiccan mystery school. I trained for six years to become an initiated priestess only to have my initiation dissolve when I found myself pregnant and going through a betrayal within my marriage. Forced to choose between the version of reality presented to me by my charismatic mentor and what I felt in my heart, it describes how I stood up for myself and eventually lost my entire spiritual community. Part two of the zine examines how the birth of my son was instrumental in helping me realize how manipulative and cult-like the school and community had been. It uses attachment theory from developmental psychology and the work of Alexandra Stein, a writer on cult recovery, to demonstrate how the school operated using some of the signatures of cult behavior. You can still get an original print version of this scene by visiting my website, alisoncar.net. There's a link on the homepage and... I've included a link in the show notes. All right. So welcome, Eli. Um, Thank you for being here. Would you mind introducing yourself for everybody? Sure. Uh, Thank you so much for having me. I'm Eli. Uh, I am the gender doula. And I am a Taurus sun, Libra rising, Capricorn moon. Um, I'm getting ready to turn 35, and I'm also a dissertating graduate student. <laughs> cool. Uh, tell us about a gen- what a gender, do- you are the gender doula, so I- does that mean you're the only one? Well, not quite. So there's one other person who uses the term gender doula that I'm familiar with. Um, they're super cool. We've, gotten, we've been in contact, um, but I, as far as I can tell, we we sort of had the idea like at the same time because I went to like reserve the um, user, like the URL mm-hmm. and it was like taken and I was like, oh, somebody else has taken it because it had been available just like the, the previous week. And so then I contacted that person and was like, hey, like, let's talk. Um, so I don't know. Uh, with COVID, we've both been super busy and haven't had a chance to check in with one another. But as far as I know, there's only two gender doulas currently. Um, although I am hoping in the future that I can uh, mentor and create just like endless gender doulas. Yeah. Tell us what a gender doula is. What do you do? Yeah. So right now um, I've settled on describing my services as full spectrum support for people who are questioning or transitioning their gender. Um, And the reason I phrase it that way is because the scope of my practice is so big that it's really hard to capture in like anything that is nicely put on like a website or a social media or even in like a like a casual conversation, you know, someone asks you, what do you do? But they don't want to know like your whole life story, right? They just want to get the, the snapshot version. And that's really hard to describe for my work. Um, 
So what I do can depend on, well, it does depend on the person I'm working with. And it can range from like really practical sort of things like advice on finding doctors or, um, you know, uh, telling someone the effects of different hormones to like sort of really emotional or spiritual support, like creating rituals around letting go of a pronoun or a name or preparing for surgery. Um, and it can also just be like me calling doctor's offices and pretending to be a prospective patient to see how they treat me, you know, as a trans person. And so it, it really just ranges all over the place. Um, and it's anything that is supportive to the individual that I happen to be working with. Thank you. <clears throat> so I'm assuming some of this is informed by your own experience, but is there training you did or is there life experience or schooling you had around this? Absolutely, that's a great question. So um, I kind of started my trans research um, quite a while back, a, a little over 10 years ago when I was in community college. And that for me was also part of me grappling with my own identity. And so um, I was in my early 20s when I found out that you could be a trans person. I didn't know that. I grew up in um, Missouri and Oklahoma and uh, my family was very conservative Christian. And um, it just wasn't, that, that kind of thing was not discussed. So when I was 23, I think I found a gender theory book in, in the public library and like just blew my mind. I was like, oh my God, this is so cool. Um, but of course at that time I wasn't, I mean, I certainly wasn't ready to like say that I was trans. Um, and because I'm a nerd, my way of approaching my identity sort of um, questions was to just lean into research and to just learn as much as I could. And so, you know, I ended up getting a degree in gender studies at UCLA. Um, I am, you know, currently I'm getting a PhD from Berkeley and all of my research has always been about trans topics, usually healthcare related, but some policy also. And, um, and during that process too, uh, I was able to come out to, you know, my, my social circle as well as myself as being trans. I first came out as non-binary and after several years of that, um, I started hormones. And then um, I actually ended up realizing that I identify as a binary male. Um, but for me, non-binary was an important safe space to occupy while I was sort of figuring that out. And um, so it was sort of this, like this process of both academic learning and personal experience that I was going through. And then once I sort of got the idea to become a gender doula, I ended up actually doing mentorship with full spectrum birth doulas. And um, that also helped me to sort of fill in the doula side of it and learning about that sort of more supportive um, mix of practical and spiritual that doulas just like are so good at. Yeah, let talk more about doulas because I'm assuming most people are familiar with the term, but some people may not be. So can you say a little bit more about like, what's a doula? What's the role of a doula? Definitely. Um, so I have, I mentored with Erica Livingston and Laura Interlandi of Birdsong, um, and they offer mentorships that sort of encompass like all different forms of doula work, and then they conceive it very broadly. And so there was death doulas in my mentorship group, birth doulas, um, just all kinds of anybody who that sort of resonated with as a title. And um, as I understand it, a uh, doula comes in and offers non-medical support around a transitional period of life. And um, so in terms of a birth doula, that might mean that um, the doula is giving like advice on different sort of postures or like offering different types of like massage or nutritional support or, you know, just anything that's like helpful to that person in that space. And um, admittedly, I don't know a ton about birth doula work because I'm not a birth doula, um, but I know that it's sort of that, like I said, the mix of spiritual slash emotional slash really practical um, support that kind of fills in a gap. In my opinion, and I'm not sure if one of my mentors said this or not, so hopefully I'm not stealing it, but I feel like doulas fill in a space that is, or maybe was, more filled in by community in other times. 
like by the grandmothers or like, you know, the community that would hold people through sort of these tough threshold moments. Um, but because of the isolationist nature of United States culture, we kind of need professionals who do that now. And so in my opinion, that's, that's the niche that a lot of doulas occupy. Yeah, absolutely. I was just, I was just thinking that right as you had said that I was like, oh, this is kind of like what community used to do. Yeah. Um, so a lot of it is just really walking with somebody through a transition. I know you yeah. can't speak to other doula roles. Do you have any thoughts on what's unique and special about the gender transition period and like walking through that with folks? Yeah, so I think that one of the things, one of the things that I think is that there needs to be some pretty significant changes in how gender transition is handled, right? Because I think in our culture, um, first of all, trans people are very looked down upon. It's like a very marginalized group of people. There's sort of this over-cultural assumption of trans inferiority. So like trans people are sort of seen as, even by very well-meaning people, right? Are often seen as like pitiful or it's like, oh no, like, you know, it's sort of seen as something you wouldn't wanna be. Um, and in our modern United States context, right? Um, and, you know, there are other contexts and other cultures that have more expansive ideas of gender that have like roles in their culture that are beyond male and female. Um, and I wouldn't want to like, you know, colonize those cultures by calling that trans or, you know, trying to sort of like take that as a model per se, because um, I think that that can be a very problematic thing that does happen a lot of times in trans literature and sometimes trans spaces. But what I do think the idea that I see from that is when there's sort of like this community, sense of community around like um, gender and transition, it can be a, a, like a really beautiful and celebrated thing and not something that's looked at as like, oh, this is sad or like negative. Um, and so basically I think one of the things that's, that can be really beautiful about transitioning your gender is that you are opening yourself up to learning all of this new, um, just what I, what I call sacred knowledge, which is like when you are breaking something that so many people have thought of as a static uh, concrete category and like really opening it up and seeing it in a new way that most people don't see it, you gain lived experience in your body from that. And I think that um, if you allow yourself to really, you know, lean into the richness of that experience, it can be so profound. And I think that what actually, in my opinion, I think that all people, regardless of how they identify, um, could learn a great deal from trans people helping them to examine their own genders, you know, and their own experiences around gender even if they are not trans or non-binary and they don't identify as anything different from what they were assigned. Um, so I'm kind of going off topic now, I'm realizing. I'm just like, this is deep on my brain right now, just this, this idea of like, hey, like actually trans people have so much to offer and being trans is such a singular and interesting experience. And it gives you so much like depth and richness around these topics. Um, and there's nothing sad or pitiful about that. It's actually really exciting and cool and beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. As you're talking, I'm like thinking like, like, oh, trans people are some of the only elders we have in that particular part of our culture, which is gender. Like you don't get to be an elder until you've kind of walked the journey and like trans people are some of the few people with that experience. Can we talk about gender? Yeah. <laughs> so you hear a lot. I mean, I don't know. I don't know where everybody listening to this is coming from, but you know, there's a lot of different ways that gender gets talked about in social media and uh, pop culture. And, you know, so you hear things like gender is a construct and um, how do you define gender? Oh, what a question. <laughs> Did I put you on the spot? <laughs> no, I think it's a great question. Well, actually like folks ask this sometimes and I don't really have a good answer. I think that 
because in my, in my opinion, gender is the confluence of a lot of different things. And I think it hits different for everyone. Um, and so I think that like what I consider to be gender or what I've experienced to be gender might not be the same as like other people, but I think that's part of why it's such an elastic category. Um, and so, so in my opinion, gender is a combination of, I would say like how you see yourself, how other people see you and reflect you back to yourself. Um, I think that's an important piece of it. I think there's pieces of it that have to do with your body in terms of, you know, both internal structures and external structures. Not that your body determines your gender, but obviously, you know, um, different people have gender euphoria or gender dysphoria around different body parts. So obviously that's a part of it, right? Um, and so I think it's this combination of all these different sort of factors and how they all interplay together. That's social, physical, internal, spiritual. It's just all the different things. And I think that's why we keep trying to make more categories for it. But I don't, I don't think that there's like, I, I feel like there's just sort of a relatively infinite number of categories or just like too many to count. And so because everybody's sort of going to be different on all those different dimensions, if that makes yeah. sense. Yeah. So you just said something that I hadn't heard before. I, of course, have heard what gender dysphoria is, but talk about gender euphoria. I love that term. Yeah, gender euphoria. So this is a huge part of my work and I like one of the things that I really advocate for as the gender doula on my social media platforms and that's the idea of gender euphoria euphoria being the opposite of dysphoria right um so it's like you know feelings of elation or happiness um and part of the reason why I'm such a huge advocate for this is because actually gender dysphoria is a very recent concept it was created by doctors um, mainly in like early to mid 1900s, um, but it really solidified in the mid-century in the United States with a doctor named uh, Harry Benjamin. And part of the reason why gender dysphoria was created is because we finally had the medical technologies to offer people um, gender affirmation procedures and hormone therapy. Um, and doctors being doctors were like, I think in many ways they were like, well, if we're treating this, it must be an illness and we need to figure out what it is that makes people sick in this way, right? And so they created this whole etiology of illness and that's gender dysphoria. Um, and however, if you look back before gender dysphoria was sort of carved out in the medical literature, um, you have this sexologist named Magnus Hirschfeld who was um, in like late 1800s, early 1900s Germany. And he um, wrote this book uh, that's just called in English, the, the um, translation is the, just the, trans the transvestites. And um, his book is him talking about people who he called transvestites, who felt most happy and most comfortable when they were wearing clothing that was opposite of the sex they were assigned at birth. And the way that he describes them is like, of course they do have like what we would call dysphoria now at times, some of them do. Like some of them are like, oh, I feel really bad or low energy when I have to wear, you know, the clothes for my sex assigned at birth. But a lot of them talk about like how good they feel and how happy they feel and how right they feel when they're dressed in clothing opposite of their sex assigned at birth. And it's not like, a cut and dry, like, oh, I feel bad, so I want to do something different. It's like, this feels good and right and, you know, delightful to me. And so I want to do it. And, you know, reading that and looking at sort of our modern quandaries around like, oh, trans people uh, often need intervention from medical communities, but we don't want to pathologize trans identities as an illness, right? It's like, there's a whole like really easy workaround because most of us don't base our life choices, our big life choices on what feels bad. Like most of us base our life choices on what feels good and what we want and what feels right to us. 
And so when you're creating a whole world of choices around, well, if you feel really bad about this, then, you know, X is the right choice. It's, it's completely cutting you off from making choices based on what feels good and right to you. And it's really actually antithetical to what a lot of folks were expressing before gender dysphoria sort of became ensconced in the medical literature. And so I really recommend folks, um, especially like for my clients who are really struggling to know what kind of choices they wanna make around medical transition, if any, I usually really push considering what feels good or what feels um, positive in their body. And, you know, even so far as like trying hormones and different things and seeing like, okay, do you feel good or not? You know, cause you can easily stop those things. They take a long time to work, but you'll know pretty quickly if you're feeling positive about the changes that you're getting or not. That's a beautiful explanation. Thank you. I, as you're talking, I'm like thinking, oh, also here's another place where like trans folks are kind of leading us in a better direction, which is so many people already are talking about how healthcare and is as we, as it stands is way too focused on disease rather than like health, you know? And so yet again, also here are trans folks leading us in that direction of like, let's stop pathologizing and let's move towards health and feeling good. The Transgender Law Center changes law, policy, and attitudes so that all people can live safely, authentically, and free from discrimination, regardless of their gender identity or expression. Transgender Law Center, or TLC, is the largest national trans-led organization advocating for a world in which all people are free to define themselves and their futures. Grounded in legal expertise and committed to racial justice, TLC employs a variety of community-driven strategies to keep transgender and gender nonconforming people alive, thriving, and fighting for liberation. You can make a donation to their important work by visiting transgenderlawcenter.org donate. Link in the show notes. Did you know that stress isn't always bad for you? Or that the key to managing stress isn't always relaxation techniques? Over thousands of years of evolution, your body has developed a nervous system that is designed to perfectly react to stress and threats in a way that keeps you alive and well. The problem is, is that in today's world, stress can be chronic and unrelenting, uh, like a global pandemic, for instance, or traumatic events can cause our nervous system to get stuck in constant flight, fight, or freeze mode. The key to having a healthy nervous system isn't just being chill all the time. It's being able to move fluidly in and out of stressful situations with ease. It's being able to be responsive to possible threats when you need to and knowing how to feel safe and soothed when you can. I created a course called Resilience, a crash course in regulating your nervous system because I was tired of the modern conversation around stress and trauma just focusing on relaxation. If you are stuck in a fight, flight, or freeze mode, your body is not going to relax no matter how much you meditate. In this short e-course, I give you an overview of how your nervous system works using a concept called polyvagal theory. I also give you tools to learn how to get to know your different nervous system states and how to shift when you need to. The course includes mindfulness exercises, but it also teaches you about the attachment systems for times when you just can't calm yourself. It's delivered in an easy-to-digest video and audio segments, and you can take it at your own pace. The best thing about it is that right now, and for the duration of the COVID-19 global pandemic, which isn't looking like it's going to end anytime soon, this course is 50% off, which means it costs less than $25. To learn more and register, go to my website, alisoncar.net, and click on the Work With Me tab. My courses are listed about halfway down the page. There's also a link to this course in the show notes. Can you talk a little bit more? There's, I mean, there's a whole huge kind of complex and like sticky history of like how trans communities and then also queer communities have intersected with medical communities. Um, can you say a little bit about like 
like where where do you like in if it were a perfect world and you got to decide like where would you like to see this go how would you like to see medical care and transness intersect so I just have to like point out that you did not tell me you were going to ask me that question before this interview. And I have to say that because I have like a perfect answer. <laughs> I've actually, so I created my own medical model for trans healthcare, which I presented at Philly Trans Wellness um, in 2019. And um, I really want to publish it, but publishing things is hard and I haven't done it yet. Um, but it's called the gender wellness model. And if I was going to say like where I want things to go, this would be it. So the idea of my gender wellness model is that every single person, no matter what their identity is, has an optimum level of gender wellness and that different people require different levels of intervention to reach that optimum level. And so like one person might need a support group or they might need one-on-one -on -one therapy, you know, and that's it. And that might be enough for them. They might just need that social support, that um, supportive community, whatever, that would be enough. Whereas another person might need like 15 surgeries. And all of that is valid under this model because everyone's level of optimum gender wellness is unique to them. And so that's, I mean, that's basically my model and that's what I would want it to be because I think that that opens it up to being, um, I think it solves a lot of problems. It solves the dysphoria problem. It solves the pathologization problem. And it also opens up supportive care around gender to being not just a trans thing, which I believe very strongly should happen. Yeah, yeah, it's an everybody thing. I love it, you have a model. <laughs> I already set out. Um, you mentioned that you are in the middle of getting a PhD. Do you wanna talk about that a little bit? Tell us what you're, what you're working oh, on. I can. Um, so my PhD, um, technically it's in jurisprudence and social policy, which is a fancy way of saying law. And um, I'm not a, I'm not a very law-oriented person, um, so it's a funny choice, I guess, but my dissertation focuses on, um, so, well, I guess I have to back up a little bit. So for trans people, a lot of uh, cis people don't actually realize this is a thing, um, and I have to remember that because to me it's just a given thing that everybody knows about, but I know that's not real. So for trans people, in order to get your identity documents or to access most forms of healthcare, you have to get a letter from usually from a mental health care provider, sometimes from a doctor, um, that basically certifies you as trans. And this can come in a lot of different forms. Like for some DMVs, it's like a, literally just like form that a doctor signs. Other times it has to be like a multi-page, extremely detailed, like uncomfortably detailed letter from a provider. Um, but it's, I call it the provider's letter. And um, it's been used across the past 120 or so years um, in so many different ways. And there's a lot of literature out there that's like, oh, this is a bad thing. It's like a gatekeeping measure. It's stopping people from getting identity documents and healthcare that they need. And um, it can be a high bar, like for certain surgeries, you're required to have a, like two or sometimes even three letters, which can be really prohibitive financially to get. So there's all these problems. And as I was doing my research on my gender wellness model, actually, I was like, this letter's gotta go. Like, but I sort of was like, why, why does it exist? Cause it's like, even the most liberal medical guidelines that I could find still require the letter. And I was like, why are people so married to this letter? Where did it come from? Like, why is it so important? So I tried to find the answer and I couldn't. And now I'm writing a dissertation about it. Um, so starting back in 1909, Germany, which is where I found the first letter and tracing it. I wanted to trace it to like modern day, but I don't have enough time. So I'm tracing it to 1979, which is when it was sort of formalized into the international standards of care. So interesting. As you're talking, I'm like, well, but of course, because the medical system is so paternalistic around anybody who's not you know, cis male white person, like the medical system just is incredibly paternalistic and thinking it knows better. Um, I have like, I just, I have so many thoughts on questions on that. In the gender wellness model, what, what would replace that letter? 
Oh, I don't think there would be any letter at all. Nothing. Yeah. Trust um, people. Yeah. Because yeah. the thing is that I think that, well, one of the things that's starting to come to light now that we're getting more research that doesn't approach trans people as a problem inherently yeah. um, is that there's, well, there's this idea and actually the letter exists because like short, short answer, um, the reason why it was put into the standards of care in the first place was because the doctors who were involved were like, we don't want people to have regrets. So it's this specter of regrets and also this specter of like um, butcher doctors, which there have been some bad actor doctors, like especially when trans healthcare was less um, available. So uh, those are the two basic reasons why they sort of like put this letter into the, into the standards, but regret was the main one, which just to like, to be clear, regret is not a big issue in trans medicine. Um, it's not that there's no instances of regret, but it's very, very uncommon. And, um, and then some folks might say, well, it's uncommon because we make you get all the letters, right? <laughs> um, but actually there is research coming out now that shows that even for folks who do detransition or who regret transitioning, they preferred that they would have the autonomy to make that choice in the first place, even if it was a choice that they regret, which like human nature, right? Makes perfect sense, but it seems to be something that needed to be put into peer reviewed literature in order to be believed. Um, and so the idea is that, you know, I don't really think letters are important. Um, I don't think we need to be certifying people's trans identities for any reason. I don't, I can't really think of a reason. I think that people should have a conversation with their doctor of this is what I'm interested in. And the doctor has medical expertise and can say, these are the risks and benefits, and then they can make an informed choice. Yeah. As you're talking, I'm like, well, I know plenty of people who regret their back surgery or their breast augmentation surgery um, who who aren't trans and nobody has asked them to get letters. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah. There's also this, I don't know. I mean, this may just be my own uh, perspective in, in the work I did um, looking at queer history, but there's also been this sort of weird, like balancing act that the medical establishment has walked throughout history to, of being like a, uh, sort of at times on the forefront of like creating social acceptance for trans and queer people. And then also like we just talked about incredibly paternalistic and like really also awful like do you have any thoughts on that is there anything in your research that that speaks to that yeah um it's so interesting actually I think I could be like there could be other instances of this that I'm not aware of but I guess the only instance that I'm aware of this particular thing happening is with trans people and that is this thing where trans people for the for like all of recorded sort of western trans history so like from like the late 1800s to the present, um, the folks that we would call trans now have sort of engaged with their healthcare providers in this really intimate way that has actually like moved the needle over time. And so like you see this in the, like with the early sexologists, um, there's the notes that they would take about their patients um, who were gender nonconforming and who would most likely we would call them trans now. And then like the patients will like write in the margins of the notes. Like they're l- literally writing in their own files in addition to the doctor, um, kind of their own personal feelings and observations. And so it starts kind of there. And then like you see that sort of continuing, you know, across time, across the ocean, there was a very, um, there's a recent book that came out last year called Others of My Kind, I believe. And it, um, it's all about how there was a lot of actually connection between the German transvestite community and the US community that became known as like transsexuals. And so even like before World War II, there was a lot of like back and forth and um, those communities continued to sort of um, 
inspire each other and change each other and have effects on each other, right? That echo through to modern times. And so over all this time, you see these trans people who are like developing these really intimate relationships with these doctors. Harry Benjamin has all of these, he was the big time doctor in the mid-century of the United States, one of the only doctors who was doing trans healthcare for quite some time. And um, he had these just boxes in his archive of like letters and photographs that folks would send him um, trying to help him with his research and like literally uh, contributing to his research. And you see that with almost every major sexologist. And then there's all these stories. There's this incredible story of this woman named Agnes who um, she came to UCLA for treatment, for gender treatment. And at the time, UCLA had a gender clinic. I believe this is in the 60s. And they were very, they, they didn't do like hormones or surgeries. They basically, everybody got conversion therapy. And their, their main goal was to like find children who were like at risk for becoming trans and then like force them to conform to their gender role assigned at birth. Kind of horrible. So Agnes comes in and she's just beautiful. And she comes and talks to these men and she's like, I've always known I was a woman. And whenever puberty hit, I just spontaneously developed breasts, even though I was assigned male at birth. And um, I don't really know why I'm like this, but I, I think I must be some sort of intersex. And I just need, like, I just want to marry my extremely heterosexual boyfriend. And so I need to get a gender affirmation surgery. And they went back and forth with Agnes for months, trying to poke holes in her story, trying to like, like find out that she wasn't really what she said and all this, and they never could. So they eventually give her her surgery. Um, they do all these big write-ups. They publish it everywhere. They're like, we found a whole new form of intersex. Like, you know, really everybody's like, wow, so cool. Like who knew that you could be assigned male at birth and then spontaneously develop breasts when you were 12, you know, like it was a big deal. And then like, I think it was like five years later, Agnes comes back and she's got like, um, like the ennui of like the mid-century housewife, you know, of the feminine mystique. <laughs> so she goes back for like psychotherapy with the same doctors and she's like, I'm bored. Like this life isn't what I thought it would be. And like, they, they agreed to, to see her um, because she sort of had this history with them. And then like at some time when they were interviewing her, she just let slip. Like, you know, when I tricked you into giving me surgery five years ago and they're like, I'm sorry, what? And she's like, yeah, like, obviously like that whole thing was made up like of course I didn't just develop breasts when I was 12 I found my mother's birth control pills and started self-dosing estrogen when I was 12 and they were like are you like they had so they had to like retract all their publications they had to look like idiots and I, and like I love that story it's like my favorite story in trans medicine mm, Agnes thank you Agnes <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. It just, I think, speaks to like, I don't know, like medicine is sort of here doing its thing and thinking that it's like in charge of all the discoveries and the mysteries, you know, and then people are over here living their lives and like knowing what they want and need. And right. Yeah. Yeah. Like you're not going to have a life-changing desperately needed like set of surgeries and medications and just keep them from everyone and people yeah. will get to them some way or another you yeah. know yeah 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 mm. just want to pause with that for a second um if you were going to like let's say you had the ear of medical professionals you know around the world they're all listening to you. What, like from your gender wellness model, like what would be, I don't know, what would you want? What would you want medical professionals to know first and foremost? Like, what would be the one most important thing? I think the one most important thing is to listen to and believe the trans people who come and speak to you. Yeah. Like that's real. That would really solve all the problems. <laughs> yeah wouldn't it? Yeah. Um, and then what about all the folks listening 
of this, I think this is actually, I, I don't think all the medical professionals are going to tune into this podcast. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> but I do think there's probably a fair number of people who might listen who are thinking or wondering if they're trans. Um, and they don't know where to start. They don't know where to go. What, 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 what advice would you give those folks? Yeah, um, I think that's such a good question. I'm planning on creating classes right now that are for trans people and also for people who don't identify as trans that sort of delve into um, this idea. Well, I'm, I call it like re-envisioning gender. Um, and the cute way that I put it is like creating your own bespoke gender. Um, uh, but which I think is going to be such an awesome like space to sort of craft with folks. Um, but I would say like just to distill the message of those classes down, what I would really love people to understand is like you are not bound by any restriction on what people think you should do based on your gender or your sex assigned at birth. And so like if you are, you know, a masculine person, but you are dismayed by the toxicity of modern, you know, masculinity, uh, you don't have to buy into any of it. You can craft your own masculinity that doesn't involve toxic elements. And if you are a feminine person and, you know, there's aspects of that femininity that don't speak to you or that don't feel right, you femininity is capacious enough that you can expand it and lean into the parts that feel nourishing to you and let go of the things that maybe are not for you or that are toxic because uh, there's toxicity in both right and so I think that I would say if you're questioning your gender right now and you don't even know where to start um, first of all you can come and talk to me um, but if that's not an option for you for one reason or another um, the main thing I would say is lean into what feels good. You know, um, one thing that I really recommend is trying to find um, space in your body that feels either neutral or positive and then meditate in that area and until you're like very, very grounded. And when you're feeling very grounded in your body, then start to like try on different types of gender in your head and see what feels good to you. And if it feels safe, then you can maybe start trying those things on in real life as well. And if you try something on and it feels scary, but good, you know, maybe go with that. And if you try something on and it feels, nah, that's not for me, that's okay, just let it go. Um, I think giving ourselves space to explore and try and not judge um, ourselves for trying is, is probably the most important part of that journey. Mm, I like that. I like that thought. Can we talk a little bit about community? Yeah. I, um, you know, as I'm, as you're talking and as we're going through all this stuff, like I'm thinking also too about the absolute importance of community and kind of reflecting back to us the ways that we want our gender to be perceived. You know, like I am thinking just about my own personal experience of like in a, for a period in my life of having moved to a very heterosexual community in Southern California with my wife and our kid and all of a sudden being perceived as like a straight mom and how like absolutely devastating that was to not be seen for like my gender and my queerness and like who I was and, and really missing my queer community in Portland. And like, what are your thoughts on how community also helps us reinforce um, our gender identities? I mean, other than all just the ways that community can kind of support us and hold us up. Do you have any thoughts on that? I do. I think that's such an important piece and I think it's often overlooked um, because I think that there's this idea that if you're comfortable with your gender identity on the inside, um, that that's what matters the most. But the fact is that what is reflected at us by our community is a really important part of our gender. And where I see this come up a lot is for people who are non-binary um, and who are not necessarily perceived as non-binary. 
um, or people who are otherwise like identifying outside of male or female, but they're just sort of shoved into one of the other boxes by most people they encounter. So an example of this would be someone who is maybe assigned female at birth and they don't identify as, you know, female or male. Um, they identify as something else, which could be many things. Um, but when they're in public and someone sees them, they say ma'am, or they walk around with friends who are assigned female birth and people say ladies, right? So the, it's those brief moments, like the person, like the cashier at the grocery store reflecting an identity at you that doesn't fit can feel really, really bad. And that type of misgendering can really wear you down over time. And I think that there's a few ways to approach it. But I mean, I've had clients who came to me and were like, look, I don't actually feel bad about my body, but I'm interested in taking hormones because I'm so tired of being perceived incorrectly by people who see me. Like I want to either be more androgynous or, you know, more feminine or more masculine so that people will perceive me, even if they perceive me as like the other, you know, quote unquote, other sex, like that would be better, right? And so that being perceived and being reflected is actually a huge part of your gender experience. And if, if the idea of taking hormones or surgeries or whatever is not vibing with you, the, the other sort of best thing that I know to do is to make sure you have spaces where your gender is reflected back to you in a way that feels good. And if your whole community is like, very heterosexual, very cisgender, very conservative, or, you know, just sort of very invested in these um, binary gender roles, it can be extremely difficult to sort of make those spaces. And that can be a really rough spot for folks to be in. I have a lot of empathy for that, because I think, again, it's just, it's really undervalued how much of a difference it makes to just be sort of consistently seen incorrectly. Yeah, it's like air. It's like oxygen. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And it just also points to the need for just a lot more gender literacy in our world. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Mm. This has been such a great conversation. Um, sure. My final question to most people is, so if you, you know, we talk a lot in this podcast about kind of weaving, weaving the world back together. Um, if you were to pick the thread that you feel like you're weaving, you know, through your work and your studies and your, you know, just your life, what do you think that thread would be? Yeah, I mean, I think that my sort of North Star for my work for the past 10 years has been that I want the world to be a better place for trans people. Mm -hmm. And just, what shape that takes changes, just like you're talking about, you know, with weaving a thread, you know, it changes through the tapestry, but it's always sort of the guiding principle. Like, I just want the world to be better for trans people. Um, and I want to do everything I can to be a part of those changes. Yeah, I'm going to follow that with one more question because I don't sure. always, but for folks that are listening that are not trans, what do you think is the simplest thing they could do personally to make this world better for trans people? Yeah, that's such a great question. I think, I think that consuming more content made by trans people. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, not everybody has friends who are trans or at least that they know about. There's a lot of trans people who are not out to everyone. So most likely, if you are existing on earth, you do know trans people, but you may not know that you know trans people. Um, so also, you know, you never wanna overburden people with questions when they haven't really signed up to be an educator, right? Um, but so the easiest way to sort of learn is just to, you know, watch media made by trans people, not media made by cis people that's about trans people, but like, you know, get on TikTok and watch trans people's TikToks trans people's YouTubes. There's a huge like trans YouTube community. There's tons of um, trans people actually try really hard to share our experiences and our knowledge with cis people, but our voices don't get amplified very well. And so um, if you really like, if you even try to look for trans people talking um, on blogs, on in books, on YouTube, on TikTok, you'll find people. But a lot of those people are not going to be 
the most famous, um, you know, in whatever the genre is. So really make an effort to try to consume more media that's made by trans people talking about trans experiences, um, because it helps you to sort of, I think it helps a lot of folks to realize that trans people are human, um, which even though it's very elementary is also sometimes hard for people to fully appreciate, I think. Yeah, yeah. Thank you so much. This has been really, really, really wonderful. Thank you so much for having me. Wasn't that a lovely interview? You can find out more about Eli on his webpage and on TikTok. I'm a follower of Eli on TikTok and I love watching his TikToks. He provides some really good, valuable information for folks. So if you know anybody who is questioning their gender or thinking about transitioning, or if maybe after listening to this, you're realizing that you could use a gender doula, I highly encourage you to check him out and check out his work. Now, like I mentioned at the beginning of this podcast, there is an urgent situation going on in the United States, especially in conservative states, attacking the rights of trans people and especially trans kids. Eli provided me with a link, a list of links to his favorite trans supporting organizations. Many of them are run by trans people of color. I highly encourage you to go through that resource list, become familiar with all the organizations. The Transgender Law Center that you heard about earlier in this episode is included, but there's so many more, more than I had room to present a a PSA for each one. So what I would encourage you to do after this episode is take some action. Pick one organization that you have read about from this list and donate, even if it's only $5. Every little bit makes a difference. We have to step up now and fight for the rights of trans people all over the world. And this is one way where you could do a very, very small thing that could potentially have a huge impact. Thanks so much for joining me on the Warp and Weft podcast. My name is Allison Carr. You, As always, you can find out more about me and more episodes of this podcast on my website at allisoncarr.net.